And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already be dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So there's a lot of confusion in some circles about the first verse of um, of this section of Mark chapter 15, verse 42. Was it the day before the high Sabbath? You know, meaning the date the Passover lambs were slaughtered? Or was it the day before the weekly Sabbath? You know, also known as Friday. Was it both? Was it the first day of unleavened bread, a high Sabbath, and the day before the weekly Sabbath? Honestly, no matter what you choose, it's just messy. And so folks like to come up with what they think are super clever workarounds, you know, generally in meme form. Um, You know, those little posters you find on social media that make claims but can't prove anything because there's no room. Uh, you know, no matter what we do, the answers are never completely satisfying because of the literary license all four Gospels take with their Passover narratives. As they're all telling the same story, you know, of how Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, becomes the greater Passover and the leader of the greater Exodus, but from different angles, it was well within the literary genre rules of the time to ignore the concept of absolute accuracy that is vitally important to modern audiences, to us. But, you know, we have to play by their rules, not ours. This was written by them, to them, and only for us. You know, when we get nitpicky, we miss the truth of the story that is meant to be conveyed. And I will say this, people who get caught up in everything in the Gospels, needing to be absolutely accurate and then reject them for that reason, and, you know, go to Judaism, will they find the same thing is true uh, of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah, um, as well. You know, that's how they communicated. And, uh, we have to be really, really careful what we try and force on, uh, the original, uh, authors and, and the original audience and how Yahweh communicated with them. Because, um, if you don't communicate with somebody in a way that, is meaningful to them and in a way they can understand they're not going to get it. And um, that's why context is important. A lot of different types of context. Uh, anyway, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have like seven years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, which is called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website, 
Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com. And transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. There is so much to cover this week as we will be finishing up chapter 15 of the Gospel of Mark and then we will have two weeks left. Uh, we'll be talking about Sabbath regulations and allowances. Um, Justin Martyr, the significance of what Joseph of Arimathea did, why Pilate agreed, what the tomb was and where it probably was. And so... You know, we'll be going through the Dead Sea Scrolls, the writings of the early church fathers, uh, Philo, Josephus, and all that jazz. Up to now, there's been nothing except, you know, brutality. But now we're going to see what loyalty looks like and who showed it. And remember, the author of Mark never names any member of the Twelve again after Peter's reaction to the crowing of the rooster in verse 73 um, of chapter 14. Even uh, in the disputed verses, none are mentioned apart from one reference to the 11. Instead, um, those who were previously unknown to the narrative uh, become the main characters. And isn't that exactly how the kingdom works sometimes? The, uh, Greatest become the least, and the least become the greatest. Oops. So, uh, in this case, uh, a member of the Beit Din, which voted to condemn him, would rise up to claim Yeshua as though he were a family member. And the women who have been following and ministering will be commissioned as the first witnesses of the resurrection. And the twelfth, you know... Oh, how the mighty have fallen, um, some more than others, but they've all been humbled to an extent that most of us can can hardly imagine. Okay, so chapter 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, I touched briefly on the problems as, you know, we've been going through this. One, you know, the three days, three nights dilemma from Matthew's account, but not Mark's. Mark's is the earliest. Um, two, the problem with the date of the Last Supper slash Passover Seder. You know, was it performed early um, the night after Nisan 13 or was it on time um, the night after Nisan 14? John and the Synoptics do not easily align on what happened here. Uh, three, based on the answer to the second problem, which preparation day are we talking about? Would it be the preparation for the Passover slash weekly Sabbath, thereby, you know, making for a double Sabbath, back-to-back -back Sabbaths, or just the preparation for the weekly Sabbath because this occurred the day after the lambs were slaughtered for Passover? You know, wasn't that just as clear as mud? You know, no worries. We're going to explore all of this and there won't be a test. Nor will you lose your salvation over this. Um, by evening, uh, 
you know, they meant the time after the time of the evening Tamid sacrifice. It said when, you know, when evening had come, Yeshua died at the ninth hour, which during this time of year would be about 345 by our time reckoning. And so even though it seems odd to us to call, you know, what's still the middle of the afternoon or late afternoon evening, that's what we would have here. It was nowhere near dark. There would be at least three hours to go, but there was a lot of work to do in order to get Yeshua buried in that short a time. John says that uh, Yeshua was slaughtered on the Passover, while the synoptics would have him crucified the day before, um, unless they were celebrating early, which might explain why there was an available upper room for, for them. Presumably, a homeowner would be using that for his own gathering on the Passover. The Tosefta seems to imply that Jerusalem was so incredibly crowded that the Pesach sacrifice could be performed the day before as a shalomim, um, which had the same procedures, and everyone would kind of just look the other way. Um, there were, after all, only about three available hours in the afternoon to get... The sacrifice is done for everyone, and um, the crowding would have been just terrible, even with only one lamb to every ten people. The lambs also had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem, and there was only so much room available. Um, you know, things are never as cut and dried as we believe when, you know, we know very little. Uh, and the more we know, the less sure we are. <laughs> Um, but what throws this into more of a confusion is the mistake of taking literally the three days and three nights of Matthew 1240. Um, when people talk about a plain text reading, they need to know that without a very thorough knowledge of the context, both the context of their, their lives and also the context of how they communicated and understood ideas, it's simply impossible. They didn't follow our rules, and he didn't even know about them because they hadn't been invented yet. And so God didn't follow our rules while talking to them. He communicated to them where they were and according to their worldview, usually in order to critique and change it, but wanting to be understood. Okay, um, so let's look at the three days, three nights claim within the Hebraic context with help from Chad Bird, a really great New Testament scholar who wrote, um, was Jesus in the grave three days and three nights, avoiding literalism by accepting a Hebrew idiom. And I will tell you that, um, I posted this on social media once and it made some folks super upset. So, you know, be warned. I honestly don't see the big deal about it, even though I used to make this same, you know, kind of mistake all the time. Uh, I'm going to be quoting from this article here. Hebrew often uses the expression tomol shilshom, literally yesterday three days. Depending on the context, it can mean yesterday or previously, um, like in Exodus 4.10, where it means in the past. It does not mean a literal 72-hour period in the past or a time period within the past 24 hours. It just means before today. Likewise, in Hebrew, the expression third day does not necessarily mean a literal third day. 
For instance, in Hosea 6-2, the prophet says, After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. He's talking about a future event in which God will bring Israel home to himself, not something he will do after 48 hours have elapsed. Um, Hosea is reflecting a common tradition in the Old Testament of significant events happening on the third day. For instance, Abraham and Isaac reached Moriah on the third day. God descended onto Sinai on the third day, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. This tradition of God doing something big on the third day, by the way, is probably what Paul was referring to when he said that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He wasn't referring to a specific proof text, but to this grouping of events and the prophetic message they implied. Moreover, we see from the book of Esther that after three days can mean on the third day. As preparation for her appearance before the king, Esther asked her fellow Jews not to eat or drink for three days, night or day. On the surface, this would suggest that after this three-day period, on the fourth day, Esther would go to the king. But no, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the king's presence. Thus, after three days, in Hebrew idiom, meant on the third day. This same way of speaking was continued in later Jewish writings, such as the Talmud, when Jewish scholars discussed days and partial days. For the rabbis, part of a day was equal to a whole day. To uh, back that last point up, um, you know, way back when I was studying Pesachim and the sacrifices, um, I was shocked to run across this same concept and... This was when I was really big into the crucifixion having to have happened on Wednesday so he could be in the grave exactly three days and three nights. You know, Yeshua was a Jew. He spoke as a Jew. He communicated with other Jews. To use precise language with them when they didn't use it themselves, when he could instead use an idiom to communicate larger truth, would be utterly foreign to them. And truth, by the way, is not the same thing as accuracy. For example... God is love. Is it true? Yes. Is it accurate? No. He's far more than that. We can't even truly comprehend all that he is. And so how could he be defined by a single word? You know, however, it is true. It <laughs> It isn't like they all got out their stopwatches like modern skeptics or people on social media who have, you know, nothing better to do than nitpick everyone to death. <coughs> One more factoid, and that is the oft-ignored witness of Justin Martyr. And by the way, Martyr is not his last name. That's what we call him because, well, you know, he was martyred after refusing to deny Yeshua and sacrifice to the Roman gods. He was actually born a Samaritan um, in Judea in um, 100 of the Common Era, and he's our primary non-biblical reporter of how the lambs were prepared for the Passover. He's an incredibly important witness of life during the post-temple period, which didn't affect the Samaritans as much as it did the Jews, of course, because their temple had been destroyed by the Hasmoneans, you know, long, long since. Uh, in, in his uh, first apology, section 67... 
Um, he says this about the early gatherings of the believers of Yeshua on Sundays, echoing the same claim made in the Didache. <clears throat> and afterward, we constantly remind each other of these things, um, it, referring to the Eucharist um, or the Lord's Supper. Uh, and the wealthy come to the aid of the poor, and we are always together. Over all that we receive, we bless the Maker of all through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then when the reader has finished, the ruler in a discourse instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And as we said before, when we have finished the prayer, bread is brought and wine and water. And the ruler likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability. And the people assent, saying the Amen. And the distribution and partaking of the Eucharist. Oh, jeez. Eucharistized elements is to each and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And those who prosper and so wish contribute what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the ruler who takes care of the orphans and the widows and those who, on account of sickness or any other cause, are in want and those who are in bonds and the strangers who are sojourners among us. And in a word, he is the guardian of all those in need. But we all hold this common gathering on Sunday, since it is the first day on which God, transforming darkness and matter, made the universe, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead, for they crucified him on the day before Saturday, and on the day after Saturday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things, which we have passed on to you for your consideration. Um, yeah, that's kind of damning for the whole Wednesday thing. Um, when I first read this, I was actually pretty shocked and astounded. And I'm glad that somebody actually pointed this out to me. It's good to have friends who study. Um, and the friends who, <laughs> they also used to, you know, but according to our earliest non-biblical witnesses, um, familiar with Judea and with the culture and privy to sources, we are most certainly not, um, you know, they said Friday, the day before the weekly Sabbath, um, you know, he evidently had no problem with the three days and nights idiom and must have taken it as such in order to make this claim. And his explanation of why they did it is just lovely and very in keeping with the Hebraic way of looking at scripture. What was the function of gathering together on Sunday? It was an acknowledgement of the new creation the kingdom of heaven come to renew all who believe. And this was hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years before Constantine assigned new meaning to it. Um, you know, 
where he wrote his opinion. The earliest believers have hundreds of years of priority and their witness should speak louder than anything hundreds of years later. <clears throat> and the fact that um, Justin was actually from that region. Um, and I think he was born... I think he was born around the year um, 100. And um, so, you know, he... Um, he would have known the um, second, third generation believers, so he would have a much clear, you know, clearer insight into into what they were doing and and why. Um, okay, so verse forty three, we're still only on the first verse. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, Turk took courage, excuse me, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now the word for counsel here is not Sanhedrin, meaning that he was not at the private hearing held in the home of the high priest. Um, you know, where they tried to make something stick. The word is uh, blutes. Uh, the word better translated as Beit Din, which was the formal council, a.k.a. The Great Sanhedrin, which met in the Chamber of Hewn Stone on the Temple Mount. The informal Sanhedrin was convened in order to find charges, uh, which wasn't generally how things were done, but were in this case, and the bait den of up to 71 members. And uh, that was always depending on the charges involved and what happened during the voting, because if they couldn't get um, a majority, they had to keep adding more judges. So the Beit Din were the ones that could formally um, charge someone and hand them over to Rome if the death penalty was warranted. In Luke 23, 51, we are told that Joseph had not voted to condemn, but since all that was needed was a two-vote majority, this was not problematic. The verdict did not need to be unanimous. This says that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God, as were all Jews, um, except Sadducees, <laughs> uh, which would have been a return to the golden age under a messianic Davidic king. Okay, well, maybe they, maybe they even, they just didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, but, um, the Davidic king wasn't only to bring salvation from th their oppressors, but also righteousness and justice. At the trial, Joseph had refused to convict, probably for a great many reasons, but as he was respected and actively looking for the inbreaking of the kingdom, as a first century Jew, he would be painfully aware that it was injustice and infighting that had brought on their latest occupation, you know, by the Romans. John and, you know, before that, the, the Greeks, the Persians, the Medes, um, the Babylonians, and for the northern kingdom, the Assyrians. Yeah. So John had um, called the people to repentance for the unrighteousness and injustice of the nation, and especially the leadership. And I imagine Joseph was among the baptized who had heard John announcing that the kingdom was incoming. I want to talk about this really quick because it just occurred to me, you know, 
when we talk about slavery in this country, um, I'm from America. And when we talk about slavery and especially like the church's complicity in slavery, I mean, the Southern Baptist Church was actually founded to be a pro-slavery church. They split off from the Northern Baptist because of slavery. They wanted to be able to do it. They didn't want to receive any flack from anybody. Um, but, um, you know, people say, well, I didn't do that. It's not my fault. It's not, you know, whatever. Um, repenting for the sins of ancestors, for the injustice of ancestor is a very biblical thing to do. You know, check out Nehemiah and, um, you know, what John the Baptist was asking them to do. We need to be sorrowful for the things that our nations have done that have been oppressive. Anyway, I will be back in just a few minutes. And welcome back to the um, second half of this week's Character in Context, where we've already talked about the the whole Good Friday kind of controversy, somewhat manufactured controversy. And um, Joseph Arimathea is who we're talking about right now. Um, he, um, The author of Mark um, says that he took courage and took the initiative. Okay, to go to Pilate and ask for the body. And this was really a dangerous enterprise. Pilate was, you know, famously a brutal and fickle man, um, brilliant politician. But, uh, you know, we're meant to remember another dangerous enterprise. Okay, John the Baptist's disciples retrieving John's body from... Macarus, I don't actually know how to pronounce that. <laughs> um, but you can find a reference for that in Antiquities 18, um, no, 119. And, you know, which we're told about in Mark 6, 29. And of course, you know, they were probably only able to retrieve his body as Herodias had the head. But this was considered the duty of a disciple to refuse to allow the body of their master, um, for that member, any family member, to, to come to shame or dishonor, as there were few fears more terrible than not being properly buried. And the, they, they would do this at any cost, even risking death. That the 11 remaining disciples of Yeshua are nowhere to be seen, it's clear that they are willing to allow his body to be thrown into a mass grave with the other victims at this point. The shame suffered by someone guilty of sedition, uh, rebellion against the Roman Empire, was to be complete, you know, not only in life but in death. In coming for Yeshua's body, um, when Yeshua was crucified for sedition, you know, such an important man was taking a huge chance that he would also be marked as a sympathizer with whatever claims Yeshua was making and whatever crimes he was convicted of. He could easily be targeted himself. Uh, Rome 
had the power to decide how the body was to be disposed of, but they did usually honor requests from family members uh, who requested the body, except in cases of treason against the state. So was Pilate going to grant this request, or was Joseph going to come under suspicion? Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. You know, Pilate was shocked. How could Yeshua be dead already? It had just been over six hours. Um, you know, it's, of course, it wasn't unknown for the soldiers to beat someone so badly that they bled out quickly or never even made it to the cross, but it was not the norm because they preferred to make an example. And the example was for someone to linger in public agony for days. But Pilate summons the centurion, and the definite article is there. So I believe we are to understand that this isn't just any centurion standing by, you know, in his the praetorium, um, but the one in charge who just a few verses earlier declared that Yeshua was indeed the Son of God, and we talked about the importance of that phrase to a Roman last time. So this is the centurion. Pilate verified that Yeshua was indeed dead. The word for surprise here, uh, Tomazo, is the same word used to describe Pilate's reaction to Yeshua's silence in the face of the accusations against him. And of course, this echoes um, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, obviously, that's that's a pretty good description right there of a crucifixion. Um Let's see. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now that word for sprinkle and sprinkle many nations, the translators of the Septuagint translated a word usually used for the sprinkling or splattering of blood for purification purposes. Now, I'm not suggesting that Pilate was purified, you know, far from it. It's just interesting how the translators wanted to translate that Hebrew word, which means to purify or consecrate with blood, with the word for surprise. Perhaps they didn't like the idea of Gentiles being purified uh, like a priest or an altar, you know, during the time that the Hebrew text was translated into Greek, you know, hundreds of years before Yeshua, you know, and they were being occupied by the Greeks. But the Masoretic reflects an entirely different understanding. Verse 45, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, the centurion verified that Yeshua was already dead, and then Pilate did something interesting. He actually granted Joseph's request. What does this mean? Well, it means that Pilate doesn't believe that Yeshua was guilty of treason or sedition, because, you know, with his mentor, Sejanus, in trouble for just that, he isn't going to take any chances unless the charges are obviously trumped up. Now, as I said before, it was considered to be a duty and an act of righteousness to bury one's relatives or one's teacher. 
Although his mother Mary was there, it's clear that her other children are not there to support her. We can only imagine her state of mind at this point, or I guess we can't even do that. It's been an unthinkable day for her. What we do know for certain is that Joseph is going to need a lot of help getting Yeshua down from the cross, and it wasn't like soldiers were going to be helpful. Except maybe that one centurion, but still, he had to take, um, Joseph had to take that body and move it to where his newly carved out family tomb was. Joan Taylor and, um, I believe most other scholars, uh, uh, believe that the most likely site really is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits. It had been a limestone quarry during the Iron Age, which was the time of Israel's monarchy, and it was a very convenient site to carve out tombs. It's also only about 200 meters, which is about half a lap around um, a, a track, uh, away from the crucifixion site outside the Gennet Gate. As he had to move and prepare the body quickly before sundown, you know, due to Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 to 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Being that this was a local custom and probably one that Pilate was familiar with, the request itself was not odd, even if the circumstances were. Joseph being neither family nor a previously recognized disciple. Now, why was it so odd, really? Why was this not a casual, decent act? Because, you know, what we've already talked about, you know, this was a festival. Joseph was willingly taking on the severest state of ritual impurity, um, a.k.a. uncleanness possible, one that required seven days of rituals and washing, and he wouldn't be able to set foot near the temple for the entire festival week. It meant that he um, couldn't bring his festival Hagigah, the uh, special offering of each Israelite male, completely separate from the Passover, Likely Joseph had never failed to do this since coming of age. He could not be there, you know, as a witness of the waving of the first sheaf of barley on Yom Habikarim. Yom meaning day and Habikarim meaning the first fruits, uh, which is the day after the Sabbath, which occurred on a Sunday morning. Becoming ritually unclean at this time was a supreme act of love. This was no small sacrifice on Joseph's part, which leads us to the unanswerable question of who helped him. John claims that Nicodemus helped him, but even with just the two of them, this was an insanely difficult job. If any of you have even held a dead pet, then you know how much more difficult it is, and a grown man would have been incredibly heavy and awkward to lift and carry. Uh, perhaps the women helped. We do not know for sure. 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Uh, Joseph uh, bought a linen shroud, which would suggest that this was not a high Sabbath, you know, the first day of unleavened bread, but instead the actual date of the slaughtering of the Passover lambs. However, 
as burials were necessary and a good deed, I imagine it was always possible to purchase what was needed, needed no matter what day it was. It was considered so terrible uh, not to properly prepare a body that even the washing of a corpse was permissible on the Sabbath. You know, life happens and death happens. And a wise application of the Torah allows for life and tragedy and need to supersede almost any commandment. If one's interpretation of Torah leads them to refuse to care either for the living or the dead, they have failed to honor God and neighbor. What isn't discussed is the very tender act of washing Yeshua's body, which something that had to be done before they laid him in the tomb. Uh, let's look at um, Mishnah Tractate uh, Shabbat um, 23.5, uh, which is the Mishnah Tractate dealing with what is and is not permissible on the Sabbath concerning a corpse with my added con commentary within parentheses based on the Kamhati commentary because it will not immediately make sense without it. They may, may, they may make ready all the needs of the corpse. They may anoint it and wash it, provided they do not move its limb, uh, meaning that they're not permitted to move any part of the corpse once Sabbath has arrived. Uh, they may take away the cushion from under it and place it on the sand so it will keep. Presumably, they're thinking that the corpse will decompose less if it is on the ground instead of upon bedding. Because the ground is cooler. Uh, they may tie the jaw, not so that it will rise, but so that it may not increase. Uh, meaning they aren't doing work to lift the jaw, you know, close it all the way, but just to keep it from opening any further. And similarly, if a beam is broken, one may support it with a bench or with the long ones of the bed, not so that it will rise, but so that it may not increase. You know, if the bed or whatever the corpse is resting on uh, breaks somehow, it can be propped up. They may not close the eyes of a corpse on the Sabbath and not on a weekday with the departure of the soul, meaning that one cannot close the eyes of a person near death um, in order to hasten death. And if one closes the eyes with the departure of the soul, then such a one sheds blood. Because, you know, if you close the eyes of one near death in order to hasten their death before the Sabbath, it's as though you were wishing their death and murdering them. So this was uh, Mishnah Seder Moed, Volume 1, pages 233, 34, um, by Pinchas Kahati. And I really, I really recommend those. Now, you can see the problems here. After the Sabbath arrived, they may only wash and anoint the body with oils, but it must be left wherever they are located. And a corpse out in the wilderness would be in danger of being picked apart by predators, and guarding it would have been very dangerous. Of course, this was written, um, the, the tractate was written a uh, hundred years later, or 170 years later, actually. And so we have no idea how much would actually have held sway over uh, Joseph, Nicodemus, and who else was assisting them. The one thing above all that becomes abundantly clear is the love, goodness, decency, and devotion in this act. 
Like the woman who anointed Yeshua for death, Joseph is named in all four Gospels for doing this. Although it says he rolled the stone against the entrance, these things were huge, and again, he would have needed help. Um, the tomb had been cut out of rock, as uh, Dr. Taylor pointed out, probably within the Iron Age quarry. John 1941 says the garden tomb was near the crucifixion site, and so placing it within the quarry, cra quarry crater would make a lot of sense. Certainly, uh, they wouldn't have traveled far in the remaining daylight and accomplished what needed to be done with enough time to roll the heavy stone over the opening to keep out predators. And I do understand that it is confusing to hear about a garden in the same sentence as Iron Age Quarry, but remember from Mark 64 when we talked about Gethsemane. The word translated garden is kapos, and that word does not mean a botanical paradise, but instead a cultivated area. In the case of the Garden of Gethsemane, it was likely a cultivated olive orchard. Being right outside the Geneth Gate, at the junction between, you have the first and the second wall, the Golgotha area was cultivated. You know, my father actually uh, used to do that. He would reclaim mining sites so that they could return to as natural state as possible. I actually remember the whole family collecting and sowing wildflower seeds on reclaimed hillsides in Northern California to help shore up the soil and to beautify it. Right now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in the middle of the Christian quarter of Jerusalem, and whatever used to be around it is covered up by buildings now. Fortunately, we do have quite a bit of testimony from the early church fathers about that area. Verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. It does seem as though the women were not part of the process based upon this statement, although... This could simply be pointing out that because they were helping out, they knew where he was. It isn't terribly important in the narrative. Joseph is the one being given his rightful moment to shine. Yeshua's mother Mary is not mentioned here, and very likely because she was too distraught to even be functional. What had happened within such a short period of time was just unthinkable, and especially for a mother watching it happen to her eldest son and being powerless to prevent any of it. And crucifixion during occupation could be like that. There was no due process in those days. Kings and governors had almost absolute authority and especially against non-citizens. Owners likewise had absolute authority to crucify their slaves and presumably the only things restraining the cruelty of many was the loss of investment and the threat of rioting if the enslaved were treated too badly or capriciously. 6,000 of Spartacus's followers were crucified from Rome to Capua a hundred years earlier, and so they did have to be careful, but they also knew that they could only remain in power if there was enough fear to keep the populace and slaves in their places, so to speak. Now, in the first century uh, before the Common Era, Alexander the Great crucified 2,000 survivors of the Siege of Tyre, <coughs> which is why Jerusalem surrendered willingly and met him at the gates with great enthusiasm and pomp. The Hasmoneans, the uh, quote-unquote kings, priest-kings, of the Jews who descended from Simon Tassi and his son John Hyrcanus, um, they, they crucified their fellow Jews. 
Specifically, Alexander Janaeus crucified 800 Pharisees after slaughtering their wives and children in front of them during the early first century um, BCE. It, it was just an unspeakably brutal and unjust time. We really just can't imagine what the world was like pre-resurrection. Mercy was something that was done for a show, as theater, and not something seen very often for tr purely altruistic reasons. Mercy was extended to family or for some sort of gain, but strangers were considered to be neither deserving of mercy or much of anything else. Mercy, honesty, and honor were rendered to family members, and they had no qualms about this. Honor-shame societies are very different from how the Western world lives today. Some things were positive, but so many are negative that I would never want to live that way, especially not as a woman. So let's finish out the stories of Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas before we leave today's lesson. Uh, Pilate was a savvy politician. Um, but, you know, he could, he could also be very brash and violent and over the top in his responses to situations. He really liked to poke the bear. He successfully maintained his position over Judea for 11 years, and that was very impressive. His downfall came actually in 36 of the Common Era when he slaughtered a group of Samaritans who were up on Mount Gerizim trying to find um, sacred vessels that were supposed to have been left there by Moses. And you can read about that in Josephus's Antiquities, 18 verses 85 through 89 verses, you know, whatever. Um, Josephus says they were armed and marched from Tiratana to Mount Gerizim, you know, determined to find these sacred vessels and, you know, gaining numbers as they went. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans were both very zealous for their, for their faith. Now, Pilate met them with both cavalry and infantry and killed some and captured others, including some of the prominent leaders of the Samaritans. The Samaritans complained to Consul Vitellius, who was a Syrian governor, and Pilate was recalled to Rome for trial and never returned. And it isn't entirely known what happened to him. You know, he lucked out in that Tiberius died before he could arrive, and, you know, although it's possible that Caligula expunged all the pending cases, Pilate was not reinstated. Nothing is known about his death or his fate after this, but just like Nimrod and Melchizedek and anyone else who hardly anything is said about in the Bible, there are so many legends, you know, positive and negative about the end of his life. Some of them redeem him and others make him out to have committed suicide. I am including an article about him by Dr. Taylor in the transcript named Pontius Pilate and the Imperial Cult in Roman Judea. And yeah, I just really like her stuff. <laughs> She's a rock star. Now, Caiaphas served as high priest from 1836 of the Common Era, uh, at which time he was deposed by the very same Vitellius who had Pilate recalled to Rome. And um, 
he was a brilliant politician. Compared to his father-in-law and five brothers who all served as high priest anywhere from just a few months to four years, um, although his father-in-law did serve for ten years before being deposed by Valerius Gratus. And yes, a high priest had to be a great politician in order to deal with the Romans and stay in power because they served at the behest of Rome and were replaced if the relationship wasn't working out. Rome, you see, held the garments of the high priest in the fortress Antonia, which was adjoined to the northwest corner of the Temple Mount and handed them out only when they were absolutely needed, namely seven days before the, re the festival so they could be reconsecrated. Now, the ironic thing, is that during the Passover season in which Caiaphas was thrown out of office, Vitellius had returned control of the priestly garments to the Jews. Um, the, you know, the first century was really a crazy time. During the 70 years of high priests in the first century, there were 21 different high priests with one serving twice. Um, with 22, you know, 22 different administrations, okay? And within context, Caiaphas served for 18 of those years and his father-in-law for 10 of them. Added to that, the other sons of uh, Annas also served in the position for, you know, somewhere around 10 more years. So out of 70 years, 38 years of those high priests came from one very corrupt family. And, you know, those were the times Yeshua lived in, and that was the uh, big administration over the temple. Um, you know, okay, so next time we're going to start in uh, Mark chapter 16. There will be two teachings on that. Um, one about the uh, commissioning of the women, and the second about the disputed verses. And uh, in the transcript, I linked a lot of articles this week about, you know, the tombs and uh, the site and, and all that. See you next week.